the State of Sound podcast, produced by the Abraham Lincoln Presidential Library and Museum. A companion series to the blockbuster exhibit, The State of Sound, the world of music from Illinois. Now playing at the Abraham Lincoln Presidential Library and Museum. Welcome to the State of Sound podcast. I'm Dave Hoekstra, and we're on the phone with the great Alex Dixon, the grandson of the legendary Willie Dixon, the architect of uh, the Chess Sound. How you doing, Alex? How you doing, Dave? I'm doing fine. Nice to talk to you again. Yeah. Um, tell me where are you where are we where are we calling you? I'm I'm live I live in a city called Dublin, California, in the Bay Area. I'm like a little suburb outside of Oakland. And. Uh, Tell me what you've been doing lately. I mean, I know you came out with the uh, Real McCoy what, over a year ago that came out. Talk about that record yeah, a little bit. We did uh, the album, The Real McCoy. It was kind of like a, you know, a, kind of a traditional blues album that was like, we're kind of, you know, pay homage to some of the, you know, old blues greats and the style they kind of did their blues in. And then I had, a, I was featuring a new singer that I wanted to uh, give a, you know, get out there. So we put a band together and, wrote some songs and we did some covers of my uh, grandfather's uh, songs and, you know, we put a good, a good product together and had a lot of fun. Um, so we did that. And, you know, I've been, since the pandemic, I just been like writing songs and doing uh get ready for other projects coming up when I get my second shot, pretty much. We're going to be going to Chicago and um, I'm producing an album on uh mud Morganfield. His oh. Muddy Waters oldest kid. When are you going to be doing that? Um, I'll be so supposed to be in Chicago at the end of May. So I'm going to talk to him, and we're doing that with a uh, with his uh, secret project. He's going to do some different music, so we're going to re- produce an album with him, and then uh, we're going to be doing our Vintage Dixon thing again. Some some more uh, tracks coming out, some really good songs that I, I wrote and I co-wrote with some of the guys in the band, and then. Uh, and I got some young guys I'm going to be working with, um, a guy named John Tavius Willis. He's a young blues guy out of Georgia. He uh, tours with Kepmo right now. And I'm going to do some young uh, country acoustic blues. So I got a lot of plans happening. Back up to Real McCoy. Talk about the singer, Lou Powell. He's uh, the vocalist, yeah. as well as your daughter got on there. Oh, yeah. My, my daughter had some, she got to do some background singing. She wanted to be involved. Uh, Lou Powell is a, uh, his job as a drummer. He's either a drummer in Chicago. Actually, it's funny because my uh, grandmother, uh, would, she knew I was always producing records, and I had one album on an artist named Cash McCall, and she was telling me, like, there's a guy in Chicago, he's about your age, you need to talk to him. And I just, you know, happened to be uh, down at um, the in Chicago for the Blues Fest, and then I met him and uh, we were talking, and he said he sang, and, you know, we both like Holland Wolf and Muddy Waters and all that stuff. We were on the same age. So uh, we brought him out to California, and we say, let's see what we can do. And he, um, I think he did a good job for his first time out, and, you know, we we found him, and he's got this unique kind of a voice, and he's, a, you know, he's going to be an up-and-comer in the next couple of years. He's playing guitar now, too, so we got some <clears throat> really awesome uh Freddie King thing happening with him. He's like, he got him the flying V. So, yeah. when you say about your age, tell the listeners about how old you are. Well, I just turned forty six 
uh, years old, so I'm getting up there. And he's 46 also. <laughs> so April 23rd was my uh, birthday, which is, you know, if you're a Cubs fan, that's, that's, my, that's my team. So that's the, when they open up, you know, Wrigley Field April 23rd. So that's where I go. <laughs> that's my birthday. So I go and you know, I'm rooting for my Cubs. But uh, so I'm 46 and uh, we figure we got a good 20 years to get legendary. <laughs> uh, talk about you were born in Chicago and you were kind of raised by uh, William Marie. Talk talk about your roots in Chicago. So I was born in Chicago on the south side of Chicago and uh, I was raised by my grandparents. My mother, her name was Patricia Dixon and she was the oldest kid between Willie and Marie and she had me, you know, as a, a kid and she got sick, so just like a lot of you know, black parents, you know, black families, they kind of like their grandparents kind of raise the grandkid if the mom gets sick. So I was um, raised by my grandparents and I started to see all my uncles and, you know, we had like a little bit of a, like a studio around the corner and he would have his band and all his friends coming over there to uh, rehearse and then they would come back to the house and, we, you know, play some piano and eat food and everything and you know, I just happened to like talk to my grandfather one day and, you know, try to get his attention. And it's like, Hey, I want to play the piano and just messing around. And before you know it, nobody was playing piano anymore in the family. And it was just me and him and for two hours a day. And so then we're like, so it became like, God, I'm playing piano. And then we moved to California after Muddy Waters uh, passed. He had, they had the same manager, a guy named Scott Cameron and, I guess Scott Cameron wanted him to be out in California and he was doing his um, touring with Johnny Hooker. Mm-hmm. So we moved out to California, out in Southern California. And literally the first thing he bought was a piano in the house. We had no furniture. He just bought a piano and we were just working on music the whole time. And that's kind of how I wound up moving to California with my grandparents. But yeah, we're all from Chicago on the South side and, we moved out to California in 1984-85, and uh, the whole family moved out there, um, and we lived in a little city called Glendale. So, right, right. Um, yeah. Talk about the was the studio was that called the Blues Factory there on, on the yeah the Blues. Fa- the Blues Factory was a seventy-seven, eleven South Racing, right, right around the corner of our, our house. It was the Blues Factory where he would have. It's kind of where he started his like his whole envision of like the blues in school, and he was doing some of the, his blues heaven uh, ideas there. And he would have his band, and people would come and record or rehearse there. And you know, it, was, it looked like a big place when I was younger, but when we went back there, it was like it might have been. 800 square feet, maybe <laughs> the whole place. Really? And, uh, yeah, we were, but you know, he had his, uh, Chicago blues all-stars there. And so we would just be, it was constantly him in there. He was off the road. He was playing, uh, music in there. And we got to, you know, I got to meet some of the greatest, you know, musicians in the world. Uh, I didn't know that at the time, but they were coming through there and they would come by the house. And, uh, it was, it, it was interesting, uh, childhood but yeah it was his own little studio he had he always had he always wanted his own own studio so that's what we um 
that's what we used for the time we were in Chicago, for sure. I think you, you told me before, maybe Muddy, Muddy probably came by. I think you told me Johnny Winter came by. Who, who oh, are some yeah, of the people I you met, remember? Yeah, Johnny Winter came by. I, I met him uh, a lot when I was younger. Um, we saw um, uh, Almond Brothers. Um, he came, they came, what's his name? Uh, Greg Almond? Greg Almond, yeah. <laughs> Greg Almond came by, and uh, of course, we, we, we we saw the the limousines. I don't know if I told you the story of the limousines where the Rolling Stones came through, and you know my grandmother kind of told them to leave, but they were being too loud. But they came by the house, and it's like funny how I was like literally talking to um, Mick Jagger about that when he was in Chicago. He remembered it. You know, my grandmother telling him to get out of here with all that noise. They came, so they did they came come down. in or did they just drive by? They came. Well, we had, we lived on a dead end street, so he, he kind of like drove. They kind of drove down. And my grandmother was like, get out of here. And then you know, everybody just kind of like left because it was a lot of, you know, limousines and they had their, uh, they had limousines and everything. So it was very, you know, it was just very uh, loud at the time. But they, that's when they went to Checkerboard and played with Muddy Waters. Oh, I remember. Yeah. 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 So that was back when I was like around seven, eight years old. And I got to see Muddy Waters, uh, you know, a few times when he was, of course, alive. But, you know, I just I didn't really realize the impact of who he really was until, like, unfortunately, you know, I just kind of, like, jumped in the car with my grandfather, didn't know where he was going, and I wound up going to Muddy Waters' funeral on sitting in the front row with my grandfather. And I'm like, why are all these TVs outside? You know, who is this guy? And I realized who he was, seeing the news and everything. So it was interesting, you know, to see that. When Johnny Winter came by, did they make you get tattoos? <laughs> no, but Johnny Winter was awesome. He was cool. You know, was he's, he's the first. He was the first Al- albino person I've ever seen in my whole life. So that was like a shock to me. I was like looking at him, and he was very cool. And he was, you know, I mean, he was the coolest guy, and he could play. And and they were, you know, he was you know, working with Muddy Waters and. My grandfather, and they were just, you know, I just thought that guy was was awesome. I mean, I remember seeing him vividly, but I remember him because he was albino, and I'm, I've never seen that before when I was six or seven years old. And he would come by the house, you know, a few times. It was very cool to meet him, actually. And he was an awesome player, so. Yeah, that's the only time I ever saw Muddy. I think it was a show they did together at the Auditorium Theater. And when after they, I can't think of the name of the record, but they did that record together. And I, oh, I remember Hardigan. it was a Hardigan. Yeah, right, right. And it was, I remember it was a St. Patrick's Day. And everybody was inebriated. Yeah. And a lot of people were drunk there. But yeah. it was a great show. <laughs> was yeah. Great show. They was, he was, uh, he, he was, they were, were partiers, but I mean, it was, you know, back then, Johnny Winters was a really astute and of the blues. And, you know, and Muddy Waters was, you know, he knew all the ins and outs of everything. It was a it was a great partnership with them. And then Johnny Wonders did an album with my grandfather before that, and they were doing some producing stuff together. I know he had like a a record company out in New York that was working with them. So it was it was interesting to see all that history kind of unfold in front of me. I didn't really realize what I was looking at, but at the time, but now when I look back on it, it seems like it's another lifetime ago. So. You know, people know about uh, places in Chicago, the VJ building and the chess studio, yeah. but I don't know, man, yeah. the, the, uh, the Blues Factory, that's, a, that's an important part of history in itself there. It really was, actually, because, I mean, we had Coco Taylor there. We had, mm-hmm. you know, um, Mighty Joe Young, some of the older blues guys that were just hanging out. I mean, everybody, 
was was rehearsing there, and uh, they were just getting their music together. And uh, you know, it was, a, it was. I'm glad he was able to do that because you know we had it at first in the basement. It was very loud at night. I, I think they actually recorded the album there with um, a piano player named Lafayette Leak. Oh, yeah. Him, they did um, the Soul Wrinkles down there, and uh, it's really it's a really awesome recording. But you know, Lafayette Leak is was one of our piano teachers for the whole family, and people don't realize he played on Johnny Be Good, so. That was him playing piano, not Johnny Johnson. And uh, so it's, you know, those are some of the stories that uh, I, I think about when I was younger about those old blues guys, for sure. Not to get, last question on the, on the, on the um, factory, but not to get real musically wonky. Did, did your dad ha- or did your grandfather have anybody help him design that? I read somewhere maybe Phil Upchurch came in and helped him do some of the design. And, um, or did he, yeah. did he figure it out all himself or how did that happen? I think Phil Upchurch did help him out because I remember him being around a lot when we were younger. I think my, I think Cash McCall might have helped him too before he went to uh, California to play with Minnie Riperton. But he had, you know, people would come in and kind of like help him design um, to get some better sound in there. But like I said, the place was very small. It was like a little small stage area. And, you know, people like Billy Branch and all those guys, they were recording there a lot when Billy first came on the scene. I remember seeing him and they would go there, Sugar Blue, they were all coming over there. So it's kind of like the rehearsal place for the Chicago Blues All-Stars. Isn't that something? So, yeah. And I, you know, and it, yeah, it was a very, it was very cool. And then the, the Chicago Blues All-Stars had different versions of the band because the, the original Chicago Blues All-Stars was like Sunnyland Slim and um, it was uh, Sunnyland Slim, Buster Benton and... Um, Johnny Johnny Shine, uh-huh. so they had like a you you know who Johnny Shine is he's like yeah, an uh-huh. older yeah, which is he's an older Mississippi uh, blues guy who actually played with Robert Johnson, which is crazy. <laughs> yeah, um, so tell for, tell the listeners who briefly who Phil Upchurch is. Phil Upchurch is a phenomenal guitar player, producer, plays bass. He was a uh, he was a chess. Um, recording artist and he just a great musician, a great studio musician who played on everybody's projects. He did some stuff with the Earthwood and Fire I know, so he's just been around forever. He's the kind of guy you call if you need an awesome guitar player. I know he's out in LA right now. Yeah, right. So. He's out on the West Coast. I haven't talked to him in a while, but I did Yeah. Did he play with Donnie Hathaway? Yeah, he played yeah. with he played with everybody. I mean he's <clears throat> he's very he's very awesome. Uh, uh him and George Benson are probably like the the best you can find if you, for certain genres. So certain like, a, you know, maybe certain blues that you want them to play, but they can play anything. I mean, Philip Hurt is the best, one of the best I heard. So, um, Your grandfather passed in 1992 at the age of 76. Um, talk yeah. about what you, two, two-way question here. Talk about what you learned from him as a very, very young musician and what you learned from him about just being a, a man. Yeah, uh, well, he, you know, he was my, you know, he's my grandfather biologically, but I call him my father because he raised me from like, you know, uh, born like, you know, six months old to I was about 18 uh, when he passed away. And, uh, you know, what he taught me was hard work, basically. I mean, like people think that, uh, you know, I inherited some kind of a Dixon Gene to like play upright bass or play bass and I'm a piano player and I'm like, no, he just 
I just practiced a lot, and that's what he would do. By the time I got on stage with him and we were playing on stage, we would play the same song a thousand times. It felt like it was a thousand times, so when I played it one time on the stage, it was like, this is easy. So he was all about preparation. He didn't really believe in the whole, like, jam thing. He would totally, you know prepare you before you go on the stage. And the only guys he jammed with were guys he played with for 30 years. He knew how to play with them already. Mm-hmm. So, he never, so he never saw. So he taught me a lot about hard work. And, you know, I, I instilled that in my daughter and myself now. And that's what I'm like writing songs. And I'm, you know, I'm making sure they're going to be good. The last project was more about feel. This next stuff is going to be more about lyrics and content. Um, so and I told the guys, I was like, you know, what we did on the Real McCoy is, it's good. People liked it. I said, but we're going to be going a lot farther than that. And they're like, Oh, okay. And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> so you got to understand. So you did cover, uh, four of Willie's songs on, uh, the real yeah. McCoy. Talk about uh, why, second, why second, go ahead. Sorry. Technically three and a half, but yes, it's four. We did a Holland for my darling, which is half, uh, his and Chester Barnett, Holland Wolf. Yeah. Talk about the ones you did and why you selected them. Cause he had such a deep songbook. Well, Holland for My Darling is a a great song that 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 uh, Holland Wolf uh, covered, and um, it was kind of like good for his voice, and it was a great you know it was a great song that we liked, so we decided to put that in there to kind of give that older chest feel in there and you know upright bass sound that we we're trying to go for. So we used that song, and um, you know we did a whole lot of uh, not a whole lot of love. I'm thinking <laughs> we did a. Uh, um, you did Grown in the Blues. I want, yeah, we did Grown in the Blues. I did Grown in the Blues because a few years back, um, I talked to Otis Rush when they were honoring him at the Chicago Blues Festival. And, you know, I just told him that we're going to be covering some stuff that he did. So we did Grown in the Blues because of basically, um, you know, Otis Rush passed away a few years back. And, I, you know, I would see him a lot and talk to his wife and everything. And that was kind of a tribute to him trying to do Grown in the Blues. Uh, for Otis Rush, and then uh, we did some songs like "Spider in My Stew," which is was covered by a blues man named. Uh, um, it was uh, his name was, was Brooke, not, not Brooke Benton, uh a blues. Uh, I forgot the guy's name, but he did "Spider in My Stew," and I just said his name too. But he was he did "Spider in My Stew" back in like nineteen seventies, and. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was a you know great musician. He played in All Stars, and uh, so we did Spider My Stew, and did, I did the song called um, "When I Make Love," which is basically a song that my grandfather sang with Coco at the Grammys, and it was like the first time he actually got um, acknowledged really as at the Grammys. So I was kind of like honoring that song. So we did you know we did the "When I Make Love" song, and so it's a recording of him and Coco Taylor recording it at or we're singing it at the Grammys and it was like the first time we ever saw him on TV and he was getting a little bit of a recognition and as we come into California, so we're kind of happy for him. So that's kind of why we did those songs, uh, the covers of his. So, and then, oh, the guy's name is Buster Benton. I keep thinking, yeah, Buster Benton Buster did Spider My Stew. Yeah, he did Spider My Stew and that was like his, one of his only hits. So we did that, you know, we're trying to go back to some of the blues musicians that were not very... People didn't really know them. They were mainstream, but they still were, you know, great musicians in Chicago, out of Chicago. 
So um, he got a 1989 Grammy for Hidden Charms. Yes, yeah, we had a uh, yep. And don't be modest. You have a co-writer credit on there, right? Study War No More. Yeah, we we got to. Uh, I remember when he called me up at the house. We were at the house, and he's like, you know, Capitol Records wants us to do an album, and uh, we're like, okay. So we worked through all the songs and. We wrote these songs and some of the songs were covers and, you know, we went over to this, at the time it was a studio called Ocean Way and, you know, he picked this band and we covered it. We had a new producer at the time, it was called T-Bone Burnett. He was uh, the producer on the album and uh, he was brand new though, it was pretty funny. (laughs) We we knew him, but he wasn't like, you know. He didn't have the reputation he has now. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, we did that album, and then uh, people don't realize, though, that T-Bone Burnett was a, an awesome producer, and he did awesome, but Cash was like, Cash McCall was um, very instrumental in that album. He kind of made it, kind of make it work, because he was kind of the link between the communication with my grandfather and T-Bone Burnett. He could, because he was a great chart reader, and he could write music and everything, so it was easier for him to communicate with the band, and he was really important in that uh, in that session. So he won his first Grammy, his first and only Grammy. We had a bunch of nominations, but he got, he got his first and only Grammy. Of course, I told him that he won his Grammy because I co-wrote a song with him. <laughs> so he, he called me lucky. He called me lucky. I said, well, you know, it's the only time he ever won a Grammy when I was involved. So <laughs> so, so we did that. And then... Um, you know, I was very happy for him to first, you know, get his acknowledgement because he did have a lot of uh, nominations, but never actually won anything. And unfortunately, he passed away before he got into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. But that's something that I think he would have enjoyed too. So, so we're at that point. Um, so that's a good entry point to talk about the uh, items you so graciously loaned to the Lincoln Museum here. So talk about uh, what people can see when they come to the museum. Well, um, I donated a some lyrics of a song called "I'm Wanted" that was covered by um, I got a famous rocker named George Thurgood. He, my grandfather, actually covered the song too back in the Cobra days. <clears throat> and then I also uh, they actually have a box set for my grandfather called it's like a a chess box set from a MCA, and it basically just kind of like shows all the famous songs that he wrote and the different artists that uh, covered them. And uh, at the time, he was the only producer to ever get his own box set because there's, there's one for Muddy and Chuck Berry where they're singing their own songs. And I think there's one for uh, Bo Diddley also. But a lot of those, except for Chuck Berry, a lot of those other ones are pretty much still Dixon songs on the box set. They had one for Holland Wolf also. So uh, they put one together with all the Holland Wolf, Little Walter, um, some Chuck Berry stuff. And and it was the first producer to get one. So he actually got that on his 75th birthday. We had a big 75th birthday party in um, California that some of uh, his friends came to and people were coming there at our house in Glendale and they kind of gave it to him, presented it to him. He was happy to see that. So he got, we, had, we donated that and then we also donated the lyrics. Um, I think I have a, some pictures of him, like when he's like, you know, writing stuff to Led Zeppelin, things like that. We gave some photos of him uh, as a young blues person and older. So things like that we uh, donated to the 
to the museum, which are, we're very grateful that they acknowledge him in this too. It was awesome. I'm in the State of Sound studio, and I'm looking out, and I can see it nicely framed in the case. You guys got to come out to do a road trip. Oh, you said you'll be in the area in May, right? Yeah, I want to come out there. I want to come yeah. out there in May because I want to be out there uh, in Chicago. So I've never been to Springfield, actually. Well, you've so got to awesome. You have to have. Have you ever had a horseshoe sandwich? <laughs> no, I don't. They talk about that. I've been here a lot, but I've never had a horseshoe, and I can't remember what all is on it. But it's 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 not good for you. It's like, uh, oh, because it lent cheese and French fries and uh, some type of meat. And anyway, I don't eat that stuff. Oh, everything in Chicago is not good for you. When I go to Chicago, I gain. I have to like eat all this clean stuff in California, and I go to Chicago and I'll gain ten pounds easy because all the food there is bad and. I know all the little Maxwell Street places that me and my grandfather would go to constantly. Oh, really? Just, yeah, I mean, like, it was it was not, it's, like, funny because, like, he would have his doctor sometime and his doctor would, like, give us, like, you know, this dry, you know, roast beef sandwiches after we do a show in Chicago. And then, like, some fan would bring us, like, Maxwell Street post sausage and everything. is ridiculous. And we eat it. <laughs> he would have fans bringing him food, too. It's, I can't believe that now, but. That's what would, that's what would happen. We would stay at the Hilton and play at the you know the Grand Park, and fans were bringing them food. I was like, geez, they didn't bring them alcohol because he didn't drink. They do they knew how to get to him. They brought him food. Yeah, wow. yeah. What lessons did you? And I think maybe we talked about this before. I I went out and interviewed him in Glendale, and I remember him sitting in that that chair. And maybe we talked about this before, but he always talked about his career as a Golden Gloves boxer. And mm-hmm. he talked about the counter counter punches and counter rhythms and stuff, and the, the way he yeah. would apply that in music. What did you learn about rhythm and then lyrics and 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 the approach to music from working with him? Well, so lyrics, you know, it's funny because when I'm writing these during the whole pandemic, I've been writing songs and I've been like thinking about how he would approach a song and. A lot of it's like he would say, like the facts of life, and just write about people's experiences, and you know, and you would get a great song or something that people can relate to. And so he would, his songwriting was basically based on either something that he saw or something that he saw somebody experience, and he would write a song about that, and people would relate to it. And like when he wrote Hoochie Coochie Man, he wrote that because Muddy Waters was a ladies' man. You know, and he and he was and all the women loved him. And he, when he wrote like Spoonful, he wrote it because you know Holland Wolf was like I was influenced and taught how to play guitar by Charlie Patton. So he wrote something that he could relate to, and so that's kind of how he would write songs about people. He would write songs that people could relate to, or you know, you could understand. And as for the counterpunch thing, he you know him being a boxer, of course, he was uh, always we would sit and watch boxing all the time in the house, ABC sports. We're watching boxing constantly in the house and the counterpunch. He just believed in like, it's it's like kind of a a rocking kind of a thing where it's like a a rhythm where, you know, when somebody's punching and they get the counterpunch back, it was more of a a swaying thing. So like sometimes when when you hear people, when you hear people talk about, uh, the swing, and like uh, jazz music, it was similar to that. It was like a swaying thing where ah. the counterpart is like a sway. So that's how he would talk to us. He, he always made sure that the music that he would write or try to get out there had kind of a sway to it and the rhythm to it. And he would, you know, tell me like 
with my left hand, make sure it's it's talking to the right hand, you know, when you're playing the piano and you have like this kind of interaction between instruments. And that's what he kind of meant about the counterpunch. So you try to get the, you try to get the music to kind of like flow and they're kind of talking to each other. And that's what he was going for. That's, that's interesting. That's super interesting. Yeah. Do you have a favorite cover? I didn't ask you this before. Do you have a favorite cover of an artist doing uh, one of Willie's songs? Um, yeah, I do. I mean, so I was lucky enough to be, like I said, I was born in Chicago, but I was out in California. And so I got to see like the, you know, all the family made fun of me. I was like the, the rock band version of all his stuff. So we oh, really? see, yeah. So cause I was cause like when I was playing with him, he was already getting like a thing, you know, I was like, I missed the van part. I was just next to him in the airplane. So they always said like, you know, you missed all the band road stuff. You went straight to first class with your grandfather playing, you know, the rock shows when he was playing with, you know, Stephen Stills and he was playing shows with, you know, the Stones and everything like that. So my favorite, I like Jeff Beck. Ain't superstitious. Oh, that's a good call. Yeah. <laughs> so I always like that kind of stuff. I always like, you know, I like Led Zeppelin stuff. I mean, people think that we had some kind of something against Zeppelin, but if, you know, People don't really understand how the music business works. Zeppelin, I've talked to Plant before, and they got the song from a band called Small Faces, and they had no clue who wrote the song, You Need Love. And then they thought it was, you know, my grandfather's song, and they were, uh, you know, oh my God, we love Willie Dixon. So, and, you know, we were really, the, the case is really against, you know, uh, Atlantic Records. It wasn't really against Led Zeppelin. People always say Led Zeppelin, but it was really against us. Atlantic Records, so, but I like Led Zeppelin when he did, you know, Bring It On Home. I like uh, a lot of the Roger Bergen versions of those songs, and I like Holland Wolf a lot, of course, so anything Holland Wolf sang, I was cool, like Spoonful. I could listen to that song forever. That could be the soundtrack to my life, or mm -hmm. Backdoor Man. <laughs> so, sure. but my favorite, I like, I like Jeff Beck, you know. I like the Jeff Beck stuff. Uh, I thought that was a really cool... Uh, rendition of that song so i like i said I, I was lucky enough to see all the rock musicians doing his songs good for so, you yeah a few more things and i'll, I'll let you go um what did you learn um maybe we can talk about dixon landing music but what did you learn about the business angles of music because you were exposed to it at such a young age and just maintaining control over your art and, and how you put that into play today well so when i, I was lucky enough so when we were in California, my grandfather was signed with a company called Bug Music, which is basically an administrative company that, you know, collects royalties from, um, for the catalog. And he insisted I went down with him with every meeting and I learned, uh, the music business. He really did. He wanted, to, he brought you along. Yeah. He made, I was there all the time. That's why if you talk to the guys at BMG, they always say, Oh, I know Alex because I was, you know, I was with my grandfather constantly with him. And so he would make sure that I knew how to collect, you know, money. If it was a sub publisher and you overseas somewhere or how to, you know, register the copyrights. If I had to register the copyrights of the songs when they, you know, have to be re-registered over again after a certain amount of years. And he was telling me, he's like, you know, this stuff's going to be worth money one day. So you need to know how to, you know, protect it. And that's kind of the thing that I tell the guys that I work with about the importance of writing their own songs, co-writing them, whatever you need to do. I, I explain to them how, like, 
you know, when I do a cover of my old, my grandfather's song, I can make more money off of owning the masters than, than actually we make off of owning the publishers and writers. And they were, they were shocked. And I was like, yeah, you can make a lot of money on the master if it's a good master. And people are going to use that version of that song. You get paid a lot. So um, he was all about the business. He taught me the importance of publishing, of course. And, you know, he learned a lot of things through trial and error himself. Mm-hmm. But, you know, some of the things that happened to him, like I would ask him questions about his chest days. And I would ask him, like, since you knew about what was going on with you and you were not getting some royalties. Why didn't you just tell him I'm not playing anymore? And he was like, they had the power to like stop me from playing altogether. We would, we would have just been off the scene because it was in the 1950s. You know, he said a lot of uh, black people didn't have a lot of rights, especially in the music business. So he said we had to kind of like play the, uh, the hand we were dealt. So that's kind of the situation why he wanted to make sure that I, you know, I learned the music business and I'm still learning. It's always changing because with this whole like internet thing, everything is always, you know, changing, but I'm, you know, he would always tell me, he says, you know, all the information are in books. He would literally hide money in books in our house. So we would crack them open. <laughs> so that's why I look at books all the time. I'm always reading books. <laughs> he would tell me, he would tell me I'm hiding the money in the book. He crack it open. Cause he would say for some stupid people, you know, they hide, you know, if you want to, if you want to make sure you can hide the money from somebody dumb, hide it in the book. <laughs> that's a great have you found any have yeah well we did yeah well you know and that's how I look I mean we found money in the books when we were younger but I know what he meant by that because I'm always on Amazon I'm buying like any you know music publishing book and I crack it open and I'm actually about to write some kind of like cheat sheet for all these blues musicians that I, I know because they email me constantly about how do I get this and that? And I'm like, I'm just going to write a cheat sheet for you guys. So you guys can understand, you know, the difference between a mechanical royalty and a performance royalty, because you know, they don't, people don't understand that you, you signing with BMI. is not, you don't get paid from your publishing through BMI. You get paid from BMI, your actual performance money when you're on the radio or you're playing a show live. So and they don't understand the mechanical royalty is totally different than a publishing uh, performance royalty or how to start their own publishing company. So I'm going to start doing that stuff and helping these guys because like I said, he, he told me hide it in the book. If you want to, if you want to hide money from somebody and you can't, you know, it doesn't know anything, hide it in the book. They'll never find it. <laughs> Those guys were like that. I mean, Chuck Berry, there's stories, you know, you know, the stories of Chuck Berry, always yeah. getting cash in advance before he plays. I had but, to, I had to pay him cash one time. No, <laughs> actually the story is with him is that he played the Chicago blues fest. My aunt, her name was Shelly Dixon, and she was like, uh, you know, she knew all the musicians too, and she like set me up kind of, and she says, Alex, go, and I knew Chuck before, we played a couple shows before, he says, you know, Alex, go and play, pay Chuck his fee for playing at the Chicago Blues Fest. So I'm all like, oh, I'm about to give him a lot of money, whatever, and this cashier's check. And I'm like, didn't even think about the whole cash thing, and I go and give him the the, the cashier's check, and he looks at me and he says, they sent you down here because I didn't want to cut out a kid. And I was like, what do you mean? This is a big check. And he's like, I want a cash. And, he, and I was like, uh-oh. <laughs> and then there's like a picture of me on my Facebook page of me taking a picture with Chuck Berry and one of my friends, and that's what I'm paying him. 
I'm actually paying him his money for the festival. <laughs> <laughs> and right. so Chuck Berry, Chuck Berry was, you know, he had a reason to be suspicious because, you know, he, he built a lot of things in the uh, rock and roll. And, you know, I just think that he should be just, you know, walking around and, you know, his family, I mean, they, they wrote a lot of blues, rap blues, but rock and roll history. Him and like Robert Johnson, those people. I mean, when you think about Robert Johnson's catalog, people always tell me like, did your grandfather write Sweet Home Chicago? And I'm like, I wish. No, that's not our song. I said, that's a Robert Johnson song, but whoever owns it should be pretty rich. Because mm-hmm. I hear it everywhere, even at the Cubs, Cubs games. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm like, whoever wrote that song, it should be, I mean, so I'm just thinking like, and I know, Robert Johnson's grandkids, and I'm just—I always tell them, like, dude, they're playing your song from at the Cubs game. They got the, one of the old presidents singing it. I said, this is too big of a song to just, you know, be on the. You should own it all. So it's, it's just a lot of a lot of things happen in the blues community. Why people are suspicious? I can tell you that. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. You're listening to the State of Sound podcast. I'm Dave Hoekstra, and I'm speaking with Alex Dixon, the grandson of blues legend Willie Dixon. Talk yeah, about, I mean, um, just real briefly, talk about what Dixon Landing Music does, what, what, who do you work with, and actually tail that in with also how people can find you, like give us your websites and things like that. So we have our website, DixonLandingMusic.com. It's been around for a while. We have a... Um, music publishing company that we basically, you know, have our songs in and we have administration through BMG, which is the, the they're like, they basically like collect our money for us. Um, Six music is, you know, we've done three or four different projects with it. And I also use it to house like the songs that I co-wrote with my grandfather that I'm still like re-releasing them. So I use that. That's my like, company that I use to house my uh, songs that I wrote with my grandfather. So um, is, there, is there some other songs that people don't know about that might be coming out? Or? Oh, yeah. We have, I have about 40, I got 40 songs that me and him wrote together. 40? And I'm going to yeah. And oh. we're going to put them, we're going to put them out and uh, re-release them. We're going to do like a kind of a documentary thing where we'll have some guys that he worked with or people that I know and we're just kind of like you know, be in a studio and we'll do renditions of the songs and put it out. It's going to be like a documentary type thing we're working on right now. That's the, that's the plan. So, but I got about 40 songs that my grandmother, um, either I wrote them with him or my grandmother would, when he first passed away, would say, Alex, take these lyrics and, uh, you know, basically finish them and write the songs. Cause you know, how to write like his style and I would kind of know where he's coming from. So just deciphering some of the stuff he was talking about, I would just finish the songs up. And uh, it was, you know, a fun project. I've been, and then I would just also like have my own songs. And then cause his, his songs are all lyrics. And then I had to put the music to it and finish the lyrics. So we had about 40 songs that we're going to be putting out. I mean, a lot of things are going to be happening last year, but of course the pandemic, but 22 and, you know, 23 is going to be a, a little bit more busy. But, you know, we're going to have fun with those uh lyrics and see what we can do with them because when you look at like the lyrics on paper you know you don't see anything sometimes like for instance like we were laughing 
a few weeks ago and I was like showing my uh, daughter the lyrics of, you know, uh, you need love, which turned to like the song whole lot of love. Mm-hmm. And you look at the lyrics, it's like really crazy. You would think it's like not even going to be a good song. You know, I'm not petting, you're not fretting. It's like, this doesn't make any sense, but it wound up being a great song if you put the right music to it. So I always, uh, I always tell her, like, you can never tell what a good song's going to be by just looking at the lyrics. So we have that going on. And Dixieland Music is, is like I said, it's a, our own music company. We put our own records out. We're independent. You know, we pretty much um, do everything, like, to hire out our publicists. And we use Carrie Baker. We have our, you know, I said our ministry. I've known Carrie for years. Yeah, Carrie's great. Yeah, so yeah, so we use Carrie, and then we just hire our, our different guys out we're just you know we're new and we don't have the we're getting on the radio and people like what we're doing and we, we just do that stuff we do blues we do like blues rock you know i'm gonna do i did like a blues rock album before i work with a, a lady named marcy levy mm-hmm. and uh we did an album with her and that did really well and so you know we just do our own projects and uh keep it kind of in-house i haven't really you know, sign with anybody or anything like that. I kind of, like I said, sometimes when you know the music business, it's hard to sign with people. <laughs> well, you know, we're talking, I mean, John Prine's in, in this exhibit and he, he was one of the first people to do it very, get very successful with his own label, Oh Boy Records, yeah. you know? Yeah. I heard a story from him once that uh, somebody, after he got Oh Boy going, somebody wanted him to like sign with, re-sign with Atlantic or go to a big label. He wasn't interested. He wanted to stay independent. Yeah. You know, you no, to- you don't. You don't have to do that. I mean, you can. There's two things you can do, and I know. I know this from the music business. I know a lot of famous people, and I know a lot of people who have fortunes, but never. They're not the same. Oh. I know a lot of. I know a lot of people who have a lot of fame, and I know people who have a lot, a lot of fortunes. Yeah. So that's the yeah. difference. That's and, well you know, <laughs> yeah, So, that's cool. so I always try to tell my, you know. Uh, the guys I work with, because, you know, sometimes you don't get all the awards and everything like that, but I tell them, like, hey, you know what, we can, we don't have to sell that many records to make, you know, our money back because we're not, you know, in debt with the companies and, you know, we're just, just the way we do things more is smaller. So, it's just, I'm trying to teach the guys that, but, you know, it's the music business is, is difficult because so much, so many people out doing music that you have to, like, try to stand out and you know like even in 22 we're lucky enough that we're going to be doing some movie soundtrack stuff my grandfather did an album called um ginger afternoon it was like a like a movie soundtrack mm-hmm. and it didn't do that the movie didn't do that well but <clears throat> i was talking to some of the other film producers and they they want to use some of our music for a film and i was explaining to them you know how you get money when you put your music in a film and sync license so, and they're like, oh, okay. And I'm like telling them like, you know, they have to pay for that every time they play it in the movie. And I, it's funny because our first time we ever seen um, our our music in a movie was me, him, and my grandparents. We went to a movie. We saw this movie called Adventures in Babysitting at a Chicago. Oh, yeah. And, and they played uh, Coco Taylor singing Evil. That was the first time we ever seen us song in a movie in our whole life. Chicken in your stove. That's evil. Evil is going on. And we didn't know we didn't know how that worked, and they were like, "Wow!" And then he started getting the whole like you know, um, some of the mob movies and Casino, and 
you know, Wolf of Wall Street, and then we started realizing that, oh, that's a pretty good market to get into, too. So yeah. when, they're play, when they're playing your, uh, the, your song in the movie, it's pretty awesome. So um, I'm, when's, your, when's your next record come out, you yourself, Alex? Uh, we're going to probably – so I'm going to have a single coming out uh, probably uh, around July. I'm okay. going to do a single and with the Venice Dixon still, and then the album is not going to be coming out to 2022, probably this time next year. I'm going to get myself some – I want to make sure, like, the whole pandemic thing is over <laughs> before yeah. I put anything out. Because I put mine out, like, we put the last one out, like, right in the middle of the pandemic. We're like, and back in, you know, last year, we thought it would last, like, you know, two months, maybe, you know, maybe a month and a half. We had no clue it would, it would last a year and a half almost. So, well, that's unfortunate that happened, but, you know, we still put it out. And people still liked it, so that's cool. Can you, um, as we wrap this up, can you pick a couple songs uh, from that album that you like and, and talk about them? Yeah, well, uh, the song, the feature song on there is a song called Nothing News Under the Sun, which is basically, like, I wrote it about, like, you know, kind of, uh, if you listen to the lyrics, it's kind of like a older person is talking to his younger uh, younger kid, younger grandkid or kid, and he's telling him, he's giving him advice about, you know, basically he's uh, he's been through the same things he's going to go through. And that's kind of the same thing that my grandfather would talk to me about. He would say, everything you did, I've already done before. So you're not going to fool me. So <laughs> that's kind of what that song's about. <laughs> and that, is, that <laughs> you why your is that why your daughter sings on that? Yeah, my daughter's on there because it's like a generational thing where I was like, you know, and he's, and he's talking to so this older person is talking to a, his uh, grand, you know, grandkid or kid and just telling them like, you can, you nothing's new under the sun. Everything's been done before. So you're not gonna you're not gonna trick me. And that's what he would say around the house. You know, there's nothing new under the sun. So uh so that's where that title came from. And then I did a song called uh, of course the real McCoy and you know, he would you know, we would just write the songs about, you know, a rich man gets what he pays for, a man like me gets the real McCoy. It's pretty much the, the hook. Cause, you know, he, he was just he was just saying like, you know, uh, sometimes we have money. People act different around you, so that's kind of what I was writing that about. And then, but you know, you he would say like he or like the songs about people act different around you. We have money, but if you don't have money or you're just a regular person, you get the real person or you get the real thing. So that's kind of what uh, those are my two favorite songs on there. And then, of course, the instrumental is pretty cool because we're doing like everybody's doing their. Um, their music and their solos and there's a little bit of a, a thing in there where me and the this guitar player Rico McFarland is doing like the little little Chuck Berry thing. So it's kind of a and I'm playing piano in there and bass. So it's kind of a kind of a you know a little thing of that we were doing. It's kind of a little tribute to the uh, his old band called the Big Three Trio. That's kind mm -hmm. of how they played their their music. That kind of a jump blues thing. So we just did that. We added a harmonica player. I had this, my friend uh, Steve Bell was playing harmonica on there, and we just had fun. That's the first song we actually did. So on, in the studio, and it was just you know the guy. It's funny because like I'm playing the bass, and then of course you look at, you know it's Rico McFarland's like that's like some old Chuck Berry Johnny B. Kidd stuff, and he starts playing like a Chuck Berry kind of a riff on top of it, and I'm like that's yeah that's what we're doing. And so that's kind of a little. 
homage to all the little victory trios, some of his chess days, some of the things they were doing back in the fifties. That's kind of why it's to have that kind of a style. And it's, you know, it's, you know, that's kind of what we were doing in that uh, album. It was a tribute to uh, older blues man, older style blues. And uh, I think we kind of did it. So. Um, last thing. Um, you're, you're, you're young. You're 46. Um, yeah. What about your peer group? How do they look at traditional blues and, um, you know, and, and the future of blues? Well, it's, um, so like when I talk to, you know, some of my friends, I mean, you know, like a Ronnie Baker Brooks or Billy, they, they like that style of blues. And they're, they're happy that, you know, somebody's still, they're doing it. They're kind of afraid that it might not sell or they're not, you know, they're not sure if it's going to go mainstream, but, they were t- they totally remember that style of music and they appreciate it and they kind of wanted to be like how it was when in the heyday in Chicago back in like the seventies eighties you know you would even think about walking in Chicago with your guitar and walking on stage and playing because you know so many bad you know awesome guitar players all the way around and so that's kind of what the theme that I was going but they kind of they kind of um, appreciate that old style of blues and they know where it came from the, you know, that root is kind of right out of Mississippi, that kind of a style where it's like when electric start coming in and, um, but you know, know I um, some, go ahead. Yeah. Well, I talked to some of the younger guys too and they, and they, and they talk to me about, they love the Chicago sound and, and then sometimes they want to go more acoustic. So everybody's trying to keep it as authentic as possible. Well, that's it. I mean, um, I was going to say, Several years ago, I was in Malico Studios in um, Jackson, Mississippi. Actually, Artie Blues Boy White was doing a record down there. Mm-hmm. And I, I was okay. talking to those guys, and I remember it was like midnight, and they they put up like an imaginary bottle up in the middle of the studio, and they were talking about how blues are always evolving. You can take this bottle and spin it around in the light, and you can see all kinds of different images in this in this light. But mm-hmm. where I'm going with that is like, so I get excited when I hear blues incorporating hip hop and blues uh-huh. incorporating jazz and blues. And I kind of like even what the black keys do kind of blues and a rock yeah. sound. Awesome. So, but there are other people who really want to keep it in a traditional place and kind of keep it bottled up. So nah. yeah. How do you see that? Like for the next 20, 30 years, just blues opening its ears up to all kinds of influences. Well, I'm going to, I'm going to be like, I'll give you an example how, what my grandfather would say to me right now. So he would listen to our album and he would say, that's cool. I like that. And I think you guys are doing a good job. He says, but you know, I did that 50 years ago. He was all about, <laughs> he was all about, he was all about evolving. So he would tell me like, he would tell me the same thing that everybody's been telling me before. Like, of course you can play that style. That's what I taught you how to do. So you yeah. get that. And so, and then he would try to get the next sound. He always said his, his best song was the next one. And that's why I, I told the guys, like, you know, we did this. I told Big Lou, I, you know, threw you a total softball. I think you can't really screw this up. This is straight down the line, 12 bar blues, but it shouldn't get you too flustered. And I said, but now it's going to be a little bit more, you know, advanced. And he was like, oh, and I'm like, yeah, we're going to go a little bit more. And that's the point. And I don't believe in the whole, like, you know, making everything sound totally old and the older style because, you know, like I'm 46 years old. So I listen to hip hop music. I listen to rock music and, you know, the stuff that I listen to, like if I mentioned something like Led Zeppelin in the seventies sounds totally different than 
you know, rock music now or like Nirvana sounded in the, in the 90s, right? And, and people don't sound like Nirvana now and they sound different. So blues sometimes, I believe that they have some issues when they try to make it sound only like how it was in the 50s all the time because we have to be able to evolve and get, you know, more advanced in certain styles. But there's some people that want to do that. But from what I learned from him, that's what we're going to do. I mean, we're I, I don't mind moving forward and still going back sometime and still honoring the certain style. But at the same time, you know, the stuff I write is going to be a little bit more progressive sometimes. And that's just how it is. But when I did it, when I did that though, they didn't like it that much. <laughs> well, <what? laughs> they were not, they were not too happy with uh, with me doing uh, a little bit more progressive and more rock album. But it's like I got to the point where I was like, whatever, I don't I care. I like that. I like that. Um, one thing's <laughs> timeless: blues are the facts of life. Yeah, blues are the facts of life. I mean, that's, and that's basically that's basically. Uh, the whole thing that when, I, when we write songs or I write songs, it's pretty much we're just saying something that somebody can relate to because everybody's either lost a girl or maybe has some issues with the financial stuff and you could, make, or you could talk about something that makes you happy. Like, I don't believe that blues is all about, you know, uh, sad stuff, but there's, you know, there's blues can be, you know, Wayne Dane Doodle is a party song. Yeah, sure. Or maybe, <laughs> so, maybe, maybe they forgot the book that they stashed the money in. Maybe they, they yeah. Uh, yeah. It's a great story. Well, no, but you know, you know, that's, that's true though. I mean, yeah. so I, I, I mean, we do, we do like a more, uh, I just like doing different, different styles of music, but to me, it's always going to have like a really blues feel no matter what. It's just that, you know, I'm going to do a lot of different things. When you mentioned the Black Keys, I totally dig those guys. Yeah. I think those guys are awesome. And um, but then you know, if you listen to my look at my phone, you'll see Jimi Hendrix. You'll see the Black Keys on there. You'll see Zeppelin. You'll see your know, Tom Petty stuff in there, and then you'll see Nirvana. You'll see every all kind of stuff in my in my uh, iPod or my phone now because I like different styles of music, and it all comes out when you're writing your songs. And I don't really get worried about. Because a lot of times they try to compare me to like you know the old man and like you write like him like you do that and he would tell me you know don't put that kind of pressure on you because they didn't know who Chikuji Man was going to be a hit they were just trying to write a song that was going to make some money and then when Leonard Chester came write another one he was like yeah I do um, I just want to make love to you which is basically the same you know music just different lyrics because he was just they were just trying to get hits. And then I'm a man came out, managed boy, and they all sound like Hoochie Coochie Man. And, you know, he was just trying to get his friends to get their songs out there. So whatever was working back then, they were just trying to conquer Chicago. They didn't think about, you know, people were playing their songs 50 years down the road. Yeah, they, so. they, con- they conquered the world. So. Yeah, well, the Europe thing helped them out. When they went yeah. over to Europe and tried to do the, they did the American Folk Blues Festival, that was a, a big thing for them because. They were that conquering Chicago at the time. They had to go over to Europe to get their music heard. They, they told me that. So, Alex, you're the best. Yeah, I try. <laughs> I try. Alex Dixon, musician and uh, businessman uh, from Dixon Landing Music out there in California and uh, yeah. grandson of the great Willie Dixon. And thank you be, for being so generous to the State of Sound and the Abraham Lincoln Presidential Library and Museum where they can find uh, those great artifacts from your family.
Yeah, thank you for interviewing me. This is great. Um, and thanks to uh, Lincoln Museum for honoring my uh, grandfather. And we appreciate that very okay. much, very much. Okay, love you guys. Thanks, Alex. Say okay. hi to Melissa right. for us. Okay. I will. All right. All right. Take care of you yourself. Later. Okay, bye-bye. Right. Bye-bye. This has been the State of Sound Podcast, produced by the Abraham Lincoln Presidential Library and Museum. To hear other episodes and more information about the exhibit, The State of Sound, A World of Music from Illinois, visit musicfromillinois.com.